I never spent a ton of close time with Nandi because Nandi is more of a skittish animal. He doesn't really like attention. My name's Amy Meyer, and I'm a director with the Utah Animal Rights Coalition. Nandi is what you would think of with a stereotypical cow, just kind of slow moving. And he used to love to just lay on the top of the giant compost pile and just kind of keep an eye over the property. Nandi lived his laid back life at an animal sanctuary where Amy volunteered. But one morning, he wasn't his normal laid back self. While I was filling up some waters that morning, Nandi all of a sudden went running straight to the perimeter gate, just drooling out the sides of his mouth and mooing very loudly and running back and forth, just full steam, just running and running and running. I had never seen a cow act like this. I was freaking out. So what'd you do? I remember I dropped my buckets of water and (laughs) started running. I'm Matthew Billy, and you're listening to Bleeped, a podcast about censorship and the people who stand up to it. Because sometimes free speech comes with a price. I've been an animal rights activist for about, let's see, 13 years. After I moved to Utah, I had met some new friends who were activists, and I started doing protests and things with them. But protests were not the only way that Amy and her new friends helped animals. One day, they decided to visit a nearby animal sanctuary called Ching's Farm and Rescue. Their mission is just to take in rescued farm animals, and then they had a volunteer day, so I went with them. When they arrived, they were greeted by Faith, the sanctuary's owner, and Faith introduced them to all the animals. She had this new pig called Squirt, super cute, playful piglet. And then she has a dog named Foster, and he was like a sheep dog. And Squirt, the little pig, would go and hide behind something. And then Foster would come, turn the corner, and find Squirt. And as soon as he did, Squirt, the little pig, would start squealing and squealing and like running in circles and then would go hide again. It was just so interesting to me to see how these different species actually played together. And after spending the day with Squirt and Foster and all the other animals, Amy decided to volunteer. My weekly task was normally helping with doing all the waters of all the animals. So, you know, dumping and scrubbing big troughs and filling them up. And one of those animals was Nandi. Amy was actually filling Nandi's trough that day when he started acting strange. And all of a sudden, he was very distressed looking. I remember I dropped my buckets of water and <laughs> started running into the, into the house to get Faith. Amy told Faith what was happening, and she immediately dropped what she was doing to go check it out. But when they came back outside, Faith spotted a large truck driving down a dirt road, and she realized that she'd seen Nandi act like this before. She explained Nandi had come from a property where they would get this mobile slaughterhouse that came out to the property and Nandi had seen his entire family be slaughtered by a truck and she said still to this day he still freaks out anytime there's a truck that reminds him of that kind of truck. Oh I mean it was just soul crushing honestly I've I've just never seen an animal that I don't know gone through that much 
suffering and been able to remember it. For the rest of her shift, Amy couldn't get Nandi off her mind. She started thinking about all the cows that had gone through similar traumas. And worse yet, the ones still at slaughterhouses that would go through this in the future. It started to eat away at her, so she told Faith about how she was feeling. But their conversation took a slight detour. I was talking to Faith about Nandi and about cows, and it just kind of evolved into us talking about how sad it is to drive by the Dale Smith slaughterhouse all the time and how so many people don't even realize it's there. Dale Smith & Sons is a beef slaughterhouse located just a short distance from the sanctuary. It was hard to miss. I drove by the slaughterhouse every single day to and from. It's in our backyard, too, and we're activists, and we still didn't really know all that much about it. Right then and there, Amy and Faith decided to find out more about the slaughterhouse. So they hopped in their cars, separate cars, and drove over. When they arrived, they pulled over along a small street behind the slaughterhouse and started looking around. I could see on one side of the building cows being let in, and then on the other side of the building... You could see flesh being spewn out the side. And I thought maybe I should start filming, so I went back and grabbed my camera. And just as she pressed record, two large slaughterhouse doors swung open. This tractor called a front-end loader came out with a cow in the front bed of its holder. And I thought at first it was just, you know, like a dead cow. Maybe they couldn't slaughter it for health reasons. But she was actually still alive. I saw her thrashing her head around. For a oh, my God! The cow. <gasps> He's alive. On that I think. bulldozer. Yes. He's, He's alive. alive. I think. She was moved in this tractor about 100 feet from the property and disappeared behind some trucks so I couldn't see, and then it returned without her. So I can only assume that it was just basically dumped there on the property. It's empty. It's empty. I was shocked. I thought, how can this possibly be legal? But then Amy noticed something else someone was watching them. There were um, a couple workers I saw who were out standing on, like, a stairwell, and there were two of them, and they were kind of pointing at me, and then they went inside. A few minutes later, Amy spotted a white pickup truck heading in her direction. I just thought it was another car. I just saw him come pretty quick down the street and then pull over. That's the first time I noticed him there. He rolled down his window, and it was obvious pretty fast. He was very upset with me. He said that what I was doing was illegal. I corrected him and said it's only illegal if I'm on his property, and then he changed his tune and started saying I was trespassing. You guys are uh, trespassing on UPNL property when you took the uh, pictures there of my property. That's I am on public property. property. I have not stepped foot on your property. If you have something to ask me about my business, why don't you have the balls to come and ask me? His choice of words was a little bit... Um, jarring to me. I I haven't had someone talk to me like that maybe ever. Eventually, the man in the truck realized that arguing wasn't going to work, so he tried a different strategy. I'm asking you to stop. Now I'll leave and call the cops and have them do that for me. All right, I am on public property. He told me he'd call the cops if I didn't leave, and I welcomed him to do so. I 100% thought cops would come say, you know, I'm sorry if you don't like it that she's here, but she has a right to be here. I I thought that's what was going to happen. But pretty immediately, I kind of was reminded that, you know, I'm not in Salt Lake City anymore. So the man drove away, and when he left, Faith also decided to head home. So she hopped into her car and went back to the sanctuary. 
Faith's leaving is important, though, because after the man in the truck drove away, he called the police and reported two people trespassing on Slaughterhouse property. Pretty soon, a swarm of police cars arrived. The second there were eight cop cars there, I was scared, especially because I was by myself. Then the man in the truck came back to say hello. And it immediately became very intimidating, especially because the cops were all going to him and his truck first and shaking his hands and very chummy with him. They did not <laughs> shake my hand. They, they did not seem as happy to see me. Taking pictures? Or? Uh, yep. What's your, what's your taking pictures of? He came up to me and asked me why I was taking pictures and was basically wanting more information, and I was trying to basically not talk to him much. Were you trespassing in this property? No, I was not. They said they had a witness who said I had trespassed onto private property. But Amy never left the side of the public road. The private property was past this very tall barbed wire fence, and they inspected the fence and said it looked like no one had broken through it. Did you have a friend with you? So at this point, the police turned their attention to finding the second person. They were told there were two, but they only saw one. Okay, so your friend, was she trespassing in this area? No. Amy refused to divulge any information, so the police asked for her driver's license. It was just obvious that they wanted to show how much they knew about me after they ran my license. You know, they knew my boyfriend's name. They also found his phone number. They said they knew my boyfriend was somewhere on the property and they were searching for him. So they called my boyfriend. But Amy's boyfriend figured out pretty quickly what was going on, so he just hung up the phone. So next, the police tried a name they pulled from running the license plate. Amy's boyfriend's mom. Yeah, the mom. Amy had borrowed her car. Um, I come back here. She's on that the car's registered, too. So why would the person registered to that vehicle need to come here? Because she was the one that was on the other side of the fence. Then they called her and were explaining the situation and got her afraid for me, of course. And when they realized the mom didn't hop the slaughterhouse fence, they just kept peppering Amy with questions. I didn't know how much they were just making up to see what I would say, but they were certainly making up all sorts of things that were not true. Can you give me an example? Claiming like I was illegal to drive because they ran my driver's license and it doesn't have insurance. But, you know, I know the car has insurance and the insurance covers me as a driver. Did you think they'd arrest you? Yeah, I thought there was a possibility. I mean, I just kept reminding myself that's why they keep asking me all these questions and why I need to not answer them. The police never located the second person, and they found no evidence that Amy trespassed. So they told her she could leave, but she wasn't off the hook. You're free to leave. I'm going to screen charges of criminal trespass on you. So what does that mean, screen charges? What does that mean? He'll go to our city prosecutor. He'll review it to see if there's enough evidence for you to be charged. Finally, after two hours of questioning, the police let Amy go. Okay, but I am free to leave? I was kind of an emotional wreck, to be honest. I drove away from the property and then just went to a parking lot for a while just to, like, regain my composure and feel safe to drive home because I didn't at the time. I was just shaking just to my core. Just my whole body was shaking. I was still feeling very nervous, didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, I felt kind of stupid for doing the whole thing and doing it by myself. 
When Amy's hand was steady enough, she took out her phone and called her boyfriend to let him know that she was okay. He really reassured me and said if they had any reasonable way, like any chance that they were going to be able to press charges, they would have arrested you. You're fine. And he really kind of eased my worries about that. And after an hour sitting in the parking lot, the shaking subsided and Amy felt safe to drive again. So I just, you know, figured everything was done and went home. It wasn't until about 10 days later I started getting solicitations from lawyers seeking to represent me. And they were kind of bulk mail, so it didn't even say the specific crime. And so I had no idea why I was getting them. I just thought it was weird junk mail to start receiving, and I must have landed on some weird list or something. And then two days later, I got a letter in the mail saying I was being charged with animal agriculture operation interference. Animal Agriculture Operations Interference. It was a law Utah passed in 2012 that criminalized filming a farmer's slaughterhouse. The penalty was a fine of up to $2,500 and one year in prison. I just, I didn't know what would happen. I don't think anyone would not be afraid of facing up to a year in prison. It's terrifying, and especially because, you know, a lot of activists have gone to jail. When you received that letter, were you aware of the law? I was, yes. I was among a group of activists that were frantically trying to contact our representatives to urge them to vote no on this bill. But this moved very quickly and passed by a pretty big margin really fast. It turns out that Utah is not the only state to pass a law like this by a pretty big margin really fast. So far, 28 states have proposed similar bills. Ten have enacted them. And curiously, most did this all around the same time between 2011 and 2014. In fact, back then, laws like this were so common, they were given a nickname, ag-gag laws. Ag as in agriculture, and gag as in to silence. So I wanted to know two things. What are ag-gag laws exactly? And why do they all appear at the same time? Yeah, I'm here. How are you doing, Matt? So, I Skyped with the expert. My name is Will Potter. I'm an investigative journalist. Will says that ag-gag laws aren't designed to stop someone like Amy from filming from a public street. They were made to stop people from going undercover and investigating factory farms. And they accomplish this in basically two ways. Ag-gag laws are attempts to make it illegal to photograph or videotape what's happening on factory farms. And also... Some of the ag-gag laws make it an enhanced crime to misrepresent yourself on a job application. So if I apply for a job at a slaughterhouse and don't mention that I'm an undercover investigator, that's illegal. But undercover investigations have been happening for decades. Why did it take so long for ag-gag to appear? The big shift where ag-gag started becoming a national trend, I think, aligns with shifts in technology and social media. Before Facebook and Twitter, getting exposure for undercover videos was a lot more difficult. You wrote up a press release and you made some calls and you physically put that tape in the mail or copies of it. So everything about it was cumbersome and not suited to mass distribution. But the internet changed all that. They've been able to sidestep that traditional media environment. And the fact that these organizations can release some of this footage on social media and receive hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views is really a game changer. There is actually one specific event, one investigation that showed the world just how much the game had changed. 
In 2008, an undercover investigator for the Humane Society took a job at a slaughterhouse owned by the Hallmark Westland Meatpacking Company. He worked there for like six weeks and secretly filmed the operation and anything he saw that might be illegal. Then, the Humane Society edited the footage into a nice short YouTube video and posted it online. This disturbing video tells a frightening story that shows workers abusing what are called downer cows, cattle no longer able to stand. Slaughter plant workers would kick them, jab them in the eye, ram them with the blades of a forklift. These animals, you know, they were sick and still being pushed into the food supply. It led to the largest meat recall in U.S. history. The recall was so expensive, Hallmark was forced to declare bankruptcy and shut down. This was the first time an undercover investigation put an agro-business out of business. This investigation was just, um, it was like a bomb went off in terms of public relations for the industry. I mean, the industry just absolutely freaked out about this. And when other activists saw what an undercover investigation could accomplish, they all started doing it. And the resulting videos kept blowing up on social media. I mean, the writing was on the wall that if more investigations like this took place, then the industry would face just a public relations nightmare. And like you said, it took a few years before this new wave of ag gag started being passed into law. And it really felt like all of a sudden this was popping up all over the country. I went through and read every one. I mean, I just started making my own spreadsheets and databases tracking these proposals. And soon, Will noticed a pattern. But then I started seeing paragraphs that were just identical. I mean, entire paragraphs that were the same from one proposal to the next. And that's when I started to think, okay, there has to be something else going on here. There has to be some kind of a coordinated effort that's making this possible. So Will started digging. I made little crazy boards in my office, like you would see in a movie where someone's trying to track down a a serial killer, you know, with all the post-its and highlights and everything on the wall. And I was trying to figure out what commonalities existed between all these proposals. Then one day, Will took a lunch break. He walked to the food truck down the street, ordered a vegan burrito, and took it back to his desk. Then he pulled out a document that he hadn't looked at in a very long time. That document contained a clue. And I just remember sitting there at my desk at work, you know, burrito in hand, just like, holy shit, I can't believe, I I just didn't think about this. It was the group called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Look closely at many conservative laws passed by state legislatures and you're likely to find the hand of ALEC. The American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, is difficult to describe. There aren't many organizations like them, but basically, they work like this. Corporations that would profit from certain state laws join ALEC, and they pay a lot of money for a membership. You have these industry representatives that are actually sitting on committees for ALEC, and they're coming up with what they call model legislation. Model legislation is basically a pre-written bill made by ALEC's corporate members. Any state legislator can just cut and paste the language into their own bill and pass it without anyone knowing who actually wrote it. Florida's stand-your-ground law is based on a model bill. So are many voter ID laws, bills privatizing state prisons. The list just goes on and on. The group says its model bills are templates for as many as 200 state laws passed a year. Corporations are not Alex's only members, though. Many state lawmakers also belong, 
In fact, nearly 2,000, or one quarter of all state lawmakers, have memberships. And why not? For them, it doesn't cost very much. Alec offers to fly them out to conferences, will offer up Broadway shows and all kinds of little outings to restaurants and recreational activities. And the lawmakers take these model legislation back to their home states and introduce them. So to get back to the story of Will and his vegan burrito, while he was in line at the food truck, he remembered an old model bill called the Animal and Ecological Terrorism Act. Now this is not an ag-gag bill. Most of it focused on so-called agro-terrorism or animal rights activists who break into animal facilities uninvited. But when Will got back to his desk, he dusted off his copy and read it again. It's one of these you kind of slap yourself in the head moments of like, oh my God, how did I not remember? And now that I look at it, stuff about photography or investigations is really buried. And now it's turned into its own Frankenstein. Will wanted to test his theory, so he kept investigating. So I started doing just massive amounts of cross-referencing the states that had ag-gag proposals with the states that I knew had ALEC members who were active on the agriculture committees and things like that, and just tried to connect the dots. And the result was less of a smoking gun, but the fingerprints are undeniably there. So when you discovered that lawmakers were borrowing language from Alec's bill, did you call them out on it? I did, and you know, not surprisingly, I didn't get phone calls back. Utah wasn't the first state to enact Alex model legislation, but they were the first to charge somebody with violating an ag-gag law. They gave that honor to Amy Meyer. I didn't know what would happen. I mean, it's always kind of hard when you're, you find out you're being charged with a crime that could face, you know, thousands of dollars in fines and potentially even jail time. So I started to think that maybe I should reach out to friends who write about these issues. So I actually reached out to Will Potter. I know her and her partner. And so when I heard from them, I immediately trusted enough to research and get into this. So once again, Will started digging. I just found through archive news article searches that the owner of the slaughterhouse had connections to the mayor. And not just connections, right? They were actually brothers? That's right. His brother is the person in charge of directing prosecutions. Which may or may not have had an impact on how eight cop cars arrived within a couple minutes of his phone call. So Will compiled his research and Amy's video into an article on his website. Then he hit publish and walked away to go do something else. An hour or so later, he wanted to check the post's view count, so he opened his computer again and hit refresh. But there was a problem. I was refreshing the webpage and nothing loaded, and it returned all these errors. And I was like, oh my God, what is... I was frantically on the phone with my internet service provider... After navigating through the company's tedious phone prompts, Will finally got a technician on the line. They explained that the problem wasn't actually a technical malfunction. It was something else. It was on the homepage of Reddit as one of the top stories, and that's what ended up. It was sending hundreds of thousands of people to the website, and it just couldn't couldn't handle it. So Will upgraded his hosting plan, and then... It just took off like wildfire. 
it started getting picked up by um, other media outlets. You know, the LA Times ran something, the local papers in Utah um, kind of took on a life of its own. I started getting a lot of media phone calls the next day. Pretty much every single local affiliate in Salt Lake was trying to get a hold of me and my attorney. I mean, people just went out immediately and were calling this office, setting up protests, setting up online petitions. The Draper City prosecutor's phone didn't stop ringing, and their inbox was filled with email about Amy's case. And then, in light of all the attention, the prosecutor had to think hard about what to do next. It's a case that would have been the first of its kind in Utah. But today, the charges against her were dropped. My attorney called me and told me that the case had been dropped. You know, I was in an office room, so I didn't do anything too crazy. But yeah, I was kind of shocked because it happened so fast and just hugging my coworkers. And now that the threat of jail time was gone, it was Amy's turn to take the offensive. So I got a call from Amy Meyer's partner, who is a close friend, sort of explaining what had happened. This may sound callous, but I immediately thought, this is great. That's Matthew Strugar. He's a First Amendment, police misconduct, protesters' rights, and animal rights lawyer. Back then, he worked for PETA. We've been looking for a way to challenge these ag-gag laws. So when I heard that Amy was charged for filming from a public easement, you know, from a lawyer's perspective, you really can't have better facts. You have a totally bogus law that is being enforced in a totally bogus way. They really couldn't tee it up better for us. I was really happy to be able to join as a plaintiff on the case I was still fearful that the same thing could happen to me again or could happen to another activist. Fortunately, even after the case was dismissed, we were able to use her credible fear that it would continue to be enforced against her in bogus ways to give her standing to challenge the law in federal court. The Animal Legal Defense Fund and PETA were also plaintiffs in the lawsuit. We've developed the case over the course of years. A complaint was filed, and then both sides took discovery. So we took depositions of each other's witnesses. Then experts came in and said, you know, what they thought about the facts. And after four years of developing the case, the judge finally issued his ruling. Utah's controversial agriculture gag law struck down by a federal judge. Today, U.S. District Court Judge Robert Shelby struck down the law, saying Utah has plenty of ways to protect ag businesses. Quote, suppressing broad swaths of protected speech without justification is not one of them. After the ruling, did you celebrate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did have a celebration. Yeah, we had a lot of friends over and we're certainly celebrating. It was a really, really good day. A year after we filed in Utah, a similar group of plaintiffs challenged the Idaho ag-ag law. We succeeded in knocking down most of it. So together, those two opinions are forming the universe of case law about these laws. And we're expanding our challenges. We filed suit against the Iowa ag-ag law. And we also have suits against laws in North Carolina and Wyoming. And since we taped this interview, both Wyoming and Iowa's ag-ag laws were ruled unconstitutional. 
those states where we can succeed in obtaining victories, it opens the doors to investigations. So it's going to allow investigators to get back in there to tell the public about what's going on behind those closed doors. I think it's really empowering, and I think it's particularly empowering because it was just essentially being in the right place at the right time, not even really trying to do this. This was not an intentional thing that I did. It just happened. Amy still visits the Dale Smith slaughterhouse occasionally, sometimes for a protest, sometimes for a candlelight vigil, and sometimes just to show people where everything happened. On one of those visits, Amy noticed that the slaughterhouse made some changes. They added a few architectural modifications. Now, instead of seeing that door to the slaughterhouse, all you see is this big metal wall. It's, it's literally all it is is a freestanding wall, so you can't see that back end of the building. So, I mean, even if I would have had the balls to come talk to him about it, he, he wouldn't have talked to me. This episode of Bleeped was produced by me, Matthew Billy. Rebecca Seidel was the editor. Eric Newman helped with the on-location recording. The theme song was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional scoring by Breakmaster Cylinder, Josh Woodward, and the Blue Dot Sessions. Huge thanks to Amy Meyer, Will Potter, and Matthew Strugart for being our guests. Be sure to subscribe to Bleep on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, or visit our website, bleep.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>